You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, October 12th, 2021. I'm Koda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I'm discussing changes to the MAX bus line, and Eliza Droder will update us on CSU's athletics. Then you'll be hearing a conversation between KCSU's music director, Lindsay Johnson, and musician, Shelly Thomas. Then Koda tells us about how Southwest Airlines canceled thousands of flights over the weekend. And we hear from Anton Schindler about controversial baseball games. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and speaking to Austria Cohn from the Collegian. Coda explains some updates on technology with Facebook's new parental controls. To conclude the show, I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello, everyone. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is your local news for today. Fort Collins will be reducing the frequency of max bus trips due to an ongoing driver shortage. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, the MAX, Fort Collins' bus rapid transit service, normally runs north and south along College Avenue with a 10-minute frequency, but on Monday, October 25th, it'll run every 20 minutes, Monday through Saturday. The MAX currently isn't running on Sundays. The schedule change means that the first southbound departure from the downtown transit center will be at 5.20 in the morning, and the last will be at 7 in the evening. The first northbound departure from the South Transit Center will be at 5.33 in the morning, and the last will be at 6.33 in the evening. The max service change comes amid continued staffing difficulties at Transport, which announced last month they were suspending service on two bus routes and reducing service on another because of a lack of drivers. Transport recently hired four new staff members, but another four left in the same period, according to city documents. The city is continuing recruiting efforts and has seen an increase in applications, but Transport still needed to make service changes due to the ongoing shortage. City leaders decided to reduce frequency on the MAX line rather than reducing the areas served after gathering feedback from riders. Transport service remains free of charge, as it has been since spring 2020. Riders are required to wear masks. The current max schedule is posted at ridetransport.com slash route slash max. An estimated 10,000 gallons of raw sewage poured into Spring Creek at Adora Park on Friday morning after a construction mishap. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, the spill was connected to a Fort Collins Utilities project rehabilitating a sewer line that runs under Spring Creek Trail. Contractor C&L Water Solutions have been using temporary bypass hoses to carry sewage around the construction site while workers reline the sewer main. Andrew Gingrich, Fort Collins Utilities Interim De- Deputy Director of Waterfield Operations, says the spill occurred at about 9.30 a.m. when a bypass hose rolled out of a manhole for an unknown reason and started discharging on the bank of the Spring Creek Pond. The pond is northeast of the Eldora Tennis Courts and west of the Disc Golf Course, about a mile upstream of Spring Creek's confluence of the Poudre River. The creek runs through Collery and Cattail Chorus natural areas before it reaches the Poudre. Gingrich says the Fort Collins Parks Department, which diverts water near the site for irrigation, is only active wa- is the only active water user downstream of the spill on Spring Creek. Municipal drinking water comes from Horsetooth Reservoir upstream of the spill and the Poudre River above its confluence with Spring Creek. Fort Collins Utilities and CNL Water Solutions are carrying out remediation work and consulting with public health agencies, but in the meantime, the city is encouraging people and th- their pets 
to avoid the area downstream of the pond. The city is posting updates at fcgov.com slash utilities slash sanitary sewer overflows. The city's remediation plan includes water sampling upstream and downstream of the spill and removal of and replacement of all impacted soil. The contractor has hired an environmental remediation subcontractor to assist with cleanup, Fort Collins Utilities representative said on Twitter. The city is also considering signage at the area to alert disc golf players, pet owners, and other visitors about the incident. Larimer County passed 30 active COVID-19 outbreaks as of last week. According to Pat Ferrier and Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, a second shelter for people experiencing homelessness was among five COVID-19 outbreak sites newly reported last week in Larimer County, along with an assistant living center and three schools, according to data reported by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. These additions brought the county's number of active COVID-19 outbreaks to 31. At the same time, 23 people died of COVID-19 in September, the highest monthly death toll since January when vaccines began to roll out. 11 of those deaths occurred in people in their 50s and 60s. 11 were in their 70s and 80s, and one was 90 years old. To date, 294 Larimer County residents have died of COVID-19 since the pandemic began about 19 months ago. Among the new outbreaks, 13 cases of infection were reported at Catholic Charities Homeless Shelter, 25 cases were reported at Fort Collins Rescue Mission, 25 cases were reported at New Vision Charter School, 13 cases reported at Bowder Elementary School, and 21 cases at, cases at Cruz Elementary School were reported as of Thursday last week. Larimer County's risk factors remain high, with a seven-day positivity rate of 7.5%, higher than the 5% health officials want to see, and intensive care beds near capacity at 98% utilization as of Thursday afternoon. That's all the news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back. Fifty-five hundred people tune into KCSU every week. Do you want them to hear you? Integrating into the Northern Colorado music scene can be difficult, and KCSU is here to make your life easier. Whether you're a nationally touring or local band, KCSU invites you to submit your music to KCSU's digital submission form. Find the form at kcsufm.com. I'm Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, their most recent game on October 10th, the Rams won their first home game against San Jose State, 14-32. to 
The rushing leaders, Ajon Vivens, 31 attempts for 114 yards, an average of 3.7 yards per carry. Jalen Thomas had 13 attempts for 62 yards, and quarterback Todd Centeo with 37 rushing yards and 6 attempts. The top receivers in this game, Trey McBride, 6 receptions for 60 yards, EJ Scott with 4 receptions for 47 yards, and Ty McCullough with 2 catches for 71 yards and 1 receiving touchdown. On the defense, Scott Panchin had 6 total tackles, 1.5 tackles for 14 yards lost, and and 1.5 sacks for a 13-yard loss. Daquan Jackson had 12 total tackles and 3 tackles for 14-yard loss. Quarterback Todd Santeo threw for 232 yards, 19 for 23 in passes with an 82% completion rate, was sacked once, and had no interceptions. Their next game will be in New Mexico on Saturday at 5 p.m. In women's soccer, they won their game against Air Force 1-0 with a goal by Liv Layton. Their next match will be at home against Nevada on Friday at 3 p.m. Women's volleyball won their most recent away games against Nevada with a 3-0 win and San Jose State with a 3-1 win. Jackie Van Leeft leading with 15 kills. Sasha Colombo led in blocking assists. Annie Sullivan leading in total attacks. Sierra Pritchard leading with assists and 10 digs. And Alexa Meliotis leading in digs with 11. Their next match is Thursday night for the home pink out game against New Mexico at 7 p.m. In cross country, their most recent event, the USSC Open, Earlier in October, Sydney and Devin Peterson, no relation, finished first and second in the women's 8K. In women's golf, the team placed sixth in the Badger Invitational, and in men's golf, the team placed first in the Rams Masters Invitational. In women's tennis, the Rams began their season at the Bedford Cup against Air Force in Colorado Springs, and their beach tennis tournament just finished up this weekend. In women's swim and dive, the girls won against each individual team, including Air Force, UNC, and more in Grand Junction. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net for student tickets for volleyball, football, basketball, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. Hello, and welcome to the KCSU Music Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, one of the music directors here at KCSU, and today I have for you an interview with the musician Shelley Thomas. She's a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and most recently learned how to mix and produce for herself, so she truly does it all. And so I was wondering if you'd be able to tell us a little bit about who you are as a person. Oh, good question. (laughs) No one ever asks that. (laughs) They just ask, what do you do? As a person, let's see, I value in-person connection, one-on-one connection, spirituality, um, self-development, personal growth, psychology, um, symbolism and ritual and 
culture and diversity, and I loved reading and writing, and I studied The Artist Way by Julia Cameron, and that was a big influence for me. So I really feel like I'm a, a passionate artist in a lot of ways and kind of see the world through a creative and spiritual lens at all times. I know that you have a lot of formal education in music, and do you have any education in those other subjects as well? Yeah, I studied photography in New York, um, Photo Manhattan, took some digital photography classes for a couple years and built up a portfolio and writing. I think I've always just had an intrinsic um, inclination towards writing. My father's a writer and my mom's very strong with English too, and so that informs my songwriting. How does your story as a musician begin? Mm, it began, my mom was a pianist and she would play um, for church and also classical music. So I'd fall asleep listening to her play Beethoven sonatas and beautiful pieces of music when I was a little child and started singing in church and then in school talent shows in middle school, started voice lessons when I was 15 and went to CalArts for um, classical singing because they didn't have a jazz singing program but then I switched to world music quickly after I discovered all the different styles of world music singing there um, and that kind of opened up my world and graduated there 2008 and then joined a Balkan singing group called Jena Folk Chorus in San Pedro, California. I yeah lived in New York for 11 years and worked with various projects there and then moved out to Boulder about six months ago. And what brought you here after having been in New York for so long? Well, everything was shut down. Everything was online. And I was teaching voice lessons online and um, had some love here. So was ready to leave the city mm. for now. I'm, I'm not exactly sure where I'm meant to like settle down. I just kind of follow the path that unfolds before me and take it one day at a time. You wear many hats, uh, from vocalist to percussionist to composer and oud player. Mm -hmm. So first, would you tell us what the oud is? Yes. It's an um, Arabic and Middle Eastern instrument. They have it in Turkey, Egypt, Greece, Syria. It's, it's like a lute, so it's shaped like a boat or a teardrop, and the neck is long, and it's bent at the top, and then it's fretless. So it's in the guitar family. It's like a grandfather of the guitar, and you can play um, microtones on it because there's no frets. Okay, and does that give you more control over kind of what sound you're looking to make or just more variety? Yeah, I would call it more colors because as soon as I discovered Arabic music around 2008... Uh, 2009, I fell in love with it because of the colors that you can create with, it's called makam, which is their scale system. So not just a scale of notes, but the pathways that those notes can take. Mm. And like, if you look at the piano keyboard between a black and a white note and you cut it in half, that's a quarter tone. So you have that many more um, colors and tones to choose from in building a scale. So it's just really beautiful and creative and there's lots of rich ornamentation. I like that you put it in that way because I can visualize it and when mm -hmm. you say more shades and tones I kind of picture the paint wall at Home Depot or something and mm. you know there's just tons <laughs> of different options like all the little nuanced exactly. shades yeah that's very cool how did you accumulate so many different skill sets those are such a variety of things yeah I've always been drawn to just expanding my creativity and learning and having a student mentality and drawn to a lot of different things I couldn't be boxed in as one thing or I didn't just want to be a singer you know I loved 
playing instruments since I was little and had training in that. And I just didn't let any cultural conditioning stop me from expanding in as many directions as I wanted to. So I took it upon myself to study and work with different teachers and understand the style and really get inside what I'm learning. But it's kind of like I've been through many different phases where I was obsessed with Balkan singing for several years and then obsessed with Arabic singing for several years and then picked up the oud and then just kind of journey through these different musical styles, which eventually informed my own style that I've been able to create by blending them uh, together. Yeah, and everything informs everything else. So, mm-hmm. like, for example, I studied A-way drumming from Ghana when I was at CalArts and with a chief drummer named Alfred Lodzekpo. And it's super niche style of music. You might think, like, well, how is that applicable? But you learn all these rhythms, like... 12-8 and different patterns and interlocking drum patterns and how there's call and response and there's like a lead drum and then there's a family of drums and and then you can apply that to like songwriting and composing like those patterns as well as uh, layering and arranging different sounds, textures. It just, it makes you a better musician. So everything that I've learned um, comes back to to my creative well of ideas mm-hmm. just kind of gives you more of a reservoir to draw from yeah exactly you pull from a lot of different cultures is there any mm-hmm. rhyme or reason to what you've pulled from and what you've learned about mm-hmm. I'm not sure it could be a past life connection it's just kind of like as soon as I heard Bulgarian singing for the first time it hit me right in the heart and I just knew that I had to do it and pursued it for years and years and the same with Arabic singing so um, we don't have to have a reason why we love things we can just love let's see music is so rich and so diverse and so many stories inside of it that it just really helps you understand the soul of a culture or of a person and when you see them sing you can feel their spirit so with Balkan singing there's a very strident type of tone that is kind of like piercing and also this very rich vocal ornamentation of different styles like I mentioned earlier same with the Arabic ornamentation it just it's a beautiful way to sing and to to learn and build your your musical encyclopedia and have you traveled around a lot then to kind of get all of these different skill sets yes I've been to 17 countries I think and what was your favorite It's hard to say because they're all so different. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just different expressions of humanity. I love Lebanon. It's beautiful and lived there for a while and the mountains and the music. I loved Peru um, and Morocco. Also, mountains of Shefshawan, the blue city is magical. Um, Portugal was really great. I studied Fado singing there. Any singular experience that sticks out to you when you think about the journeys that you've had? Hmm. I I had two Lebanese voice teachers, Rima Khshesh from the Arabic music retreat here in Massachusetts and Rada Shber. Um, and I studied with her some lessons at the conservatory in Lebanon. She was so awesome because we did our voice lessons in French and I'm like, kind of speak French, so kind of keeping up with what she's saying and (laughs) but she explained the intervals as like looking at your fingers like you have one two three four four three two one and you can interchange them in different combinations like math so if you're doing oh 
that's how you can learn to improvise. And also she taught me to, to use different timbres of the voice. So you can go from like really light and airy to really rich and deep and full and use any type of timbre you want for any song. So you obviously have a deep passion for this craft and have for a very long time. What is it that keeps you interested and keeps you reaching forward? I could never get tired of music. It feels like a soul contract that I made before I was born. I just, it's who I am. I can't not do it. It sounded to me like your lyrics in your new EP, Free, reflected some of that journey kind of theme and reaching forward. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Or what is the story of Free? Yeah, absolutely. So I recently did um, a sync workout with the Music District based here in Fort Collins. It was some Northern Colorado artists who were brought together to write to a brief, which is like a music supervisor gives a brief for a story or a commercial or a TV show and has certain thematic ideas. And as I'm learning to write music for sync more, we were writing to specific briefs. So that's what these three songs were written for. And then I was like, I kind of like these. I should just release it and put it out there, even though it's totally different from what I've been doing in the past and I was writing in in like a pop style R&B style also exploring my production skills how to you know learn to finish a track all on my own mixing and mastering and you know there's some like insecurities and fears that artists go through and I just had to plow through all of that and be like I I should be free to do whatever I want artistically like why am I have these voices in my head telling me I can't do this or I can't do that so I think a lot of people can relate to that and so it's just kind of about like breaking through that and having fun with your creativity. You told me that this was the first EP, if I'm correct, that you produced, mixed, and mastered all on your own. Is that right? Yes. And how was that experience versus having like a team of people on that? Both ways are awesome. I learned mixing and mastering out of necessity over the last year and a half because I wasn't out performing and touring. So I said, I want to be able to break through that glass ceiling and learn how to produce myself. And so I found like these awesome organizations, 343 Labs and Music Production for Women, led by Zylo Aria, who's an amazing producer and so inspiring because she brings together music producers that are female from all over the world and has this community. So I learned with with those classes. And then at first, like I started using GarageBand like six, seven years ago, and then Logic, maybe a couple years after that. And I would just like be winging it for making my demos. Like, what does this button do? And then, (laughs) you know, it's like, if I want to finish a song, I need to get some structured teaching. So it's always good to invest in yourself if there's something you know you need to take the next step. And then just finishing that and putting it out, I felt really proud because... It's me expressing myself and being able to learn new skills and inspire other women producers and musicians to do the same thing. Yeah, I think it's amazing just to have expressed yourself, having a piece of yourself out in the world, you know? And yeah. It's how you felt at a certain time. Right. I don't know. That's so special. I feel like we have a lot of cultural conditioning that tells us we need to be small or we need to stay safe. And people sometimes don't know how to get out of that or step forward. So I want to inspire other artists to just sing their soul song and not be afraid of judgment or whatever it is that gets in the way of you and your art. You got to just do it. Mm -hmm. 
So going a little more specific on the free EP mm-hmm. on Made for Love, your lyrics express a reaching forward into the unknown. What is it that you were searching for when writing that song? The brief was about overcoming and breaking through barriers. And so as I'm songwriting with that, you know, some things felt personal and some things just felt like letting the flow of the song see where it goes. And whether it's frustration or sadness or isolation or all the human emotions that we can get stuck in sometimes, you want to find the way to empower yourself to get to the other side of that where you feel stronger and more confident and more open to receiving and connecting to people. So that's kind of some of the ideas I was thinking about. Is it easier to write music when it's coming from within or was it a similar experience writing with a kind of brief given to you, a theme given to you? Yeah, good question. It's actually definitely harder with a brief (laughs) because you have to fit into a paradigm that's pre-existing whereas if I'm just on my own cooking spaghetti and I have a song come up I'm like oh yeah but then it also taught discipline because like you know there's different everyone has a different way of making art but I really believe that it's good to try to sit down as often as you can and just write and keep it flowing Um, because I was closed off for a couple years even like not writing and just being hard on myself or like oh well I have to have the perfect conditions where the creativity can strike you know or not finishing things and then as I grew older I've learned like discipline and how to complete things and and then it gets easier to write to a brief or not to a brief or just to keep the creative juices flowing where you're not blocking it off in any way. This is just my passion project that I am looking to acquire funds for either with a label or um, however I can bring it to life. But I have the demos basically finished and, like I said, recorded those first two singles and videos. And it's to create this new genre called World Chamber Pop. So I'm blending elements of all the styles of music I've studied over 17 years. Um, Balkan, Arabic, Hindustani pop soul classical and african music into a genre that feels alive that feels very rhythmic and celebratory makes people move and also kind of um journeying and complex with the complexity of like classical music or interesting chord progressions and that definitely that cinematic feel so the intent is you know self-expression from my ideas and also to bring together people from different cultures and to share um, the powerful unifying force that that music is for us and to uplift and inspire people to find meaning and joy and fulfill their potential music industry is really complicated um you have to keep learning you have to attend workshops read books you know, learn about the business side, the royalties and the contracts and everything, and also keep writing and just not get um, disappointed or jaded or feel limited by like bumps along the way. It's definitely a long game. It's a life, it's a lifelong commitment, like being a musician. So if anyone has questions or I have like a database of resources and websites that I've compiled over the years, anyone can reach out to me um, through my website. There's a web form and I'm happy to answer questions or offer support. Um, And just know that you can do it and that you are needed and you need to ask for fair wages because we need to increase the value of music for musicians everywhere. And remember that you hold the power as a creator and the world needs your art. That's 
very kind of you to offer your help. And again, she can be reached at ShellyThomasMusic.com. And what are your social media pages that people could find you at? Yeah, same thing. So it's Shelly with an E-Y, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y-T-H-O-M-A-S, music. And I also have a Patreon um, where I release early music, early demos, extra videos, monthly live stream concerts, and lots of bonus content. So you can find me at that, patreon.com slash Shelly Thomas Music. Awesome. And so anybody who's interested in learning more about World Chamber Pop, or if you're interested about learning from any of the cultures that Shelly plays from as well, make sure to check her out on her website or social media pages. Thank you very much for coming in today, Shelly. It was lovely to talk to you and learn about what you do and your journey. You too, Lindsay. It was awesome to connect with you again, and thanks for having me. Make sure to check out ShellyThomasMusic.com to keep up with all of Shelly's amazing projects. Once again, I'm Lindsay, and you're listening to the KCSU Music Podcast by KCSU FM. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you next time. For a while, didn't have enough money, cause I spent it all on booze and goals. Couldn't find a man to be my honey, cause he always liked the new age girls. But now I've leveled up and I left my trail. Tears in the dust, oh, and I'm thankful to you for reminding me of the world. Hey, this is Tom May from the Menzingers, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Kuta Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration received a request from drug maker Merck to authorize their COVID-19 treatment pill. According to Matthew Perone at the Associated Press, if the medication is cleared, it could provide a new way to treat the illness and prevent COVID-19 complications. Current approved COVID-19 treatments only work using IV use or injection. Merck's data on the drug will be analyzed for safety and efficacy prior to the FDA even considering approval, and if passed, it will be offered to adults for treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19. Dr. Nicholas Carsonis, who works with Merck's Infectious Disease Unit, said, quote, the value here is that it's a pill, so you don't have to deal with the infusion centers and all the factors around that, end quote. Four people died after a small plane crash at an Atlanta-area airport. 
According to the National Public Radio and the Associated Press, the single-engine Cessna 210 crashed around 1 in the afternoon Friday at DeKalb Peachtree Airport in Chambly, which is a northeastern suburb of Atlanta. An investigation into the cause of the crash is being led by the National Transportation Safety Board, according to the Federal Aviation Administration. The airport is less than 10 miles from downtown Atlanta and caught fire following the crash. It's unknown what might have caused the crash so far. At least 15 firefighters responded to the scene, and all passengers died in the crash. Southwest Airlines canceled 1,900 flights over the weekend, stranding, stranding travelers and Southwest Airlines staff across the U.S. According to Don Gilbertson at USA Today, cancellations continued into Monday, with 28% of the airline's scheduled flights Sunday being canceled. This weekend was especially busy, with Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day being celebrated Monday, giving federal employees and other workers the chance to take off for a long weekend. Southwest said that the cancellations were caused by issues when implementing a new air traffic control program, as well as inclement weather. The airline might continue to struggle with cancellations due to staff members being displaced in states the airline hadn't accounted for, meaning that some flights are understaffed. Casey Murray, president of Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, said that three in four Southwest Airlines pilots had Saturday trips rerouted. An FBI sting operation caught a Maryland couple who've now been charged with trying to sell U.S. nuclear secrets via an SD card. According to Matthew Hoy at CNN, the couple intended to receive cryptocurrency in exchange for top clearance security information. U.S. Navy nuclear engineer Jonathan Tobe and his wife, Deanna Tobe, were arrested Saturday, with the Washington Post reporting on this on the espionage plot. The Navy engineer reportedly wrote, quote, Is there some physical signal you can make that proves your identity to me? I could plan to visit Washington, D.C. over Memorial Day weekend. I would just be another tourist in the crowd. Perhaps you could fly a signal flag on your roof, something easily observable from the street, but nothing to arouse an adversary's suspicion, end quote. He suggested using decentralized cryptocurrency due to both the couple and the undercover FBI agent buyer being able to deny connection to the incident. The Tobes additionally found multiple drop locations for the cryptocurrency to avoid being traced. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. Now for Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 28 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. Brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Well, the playoffs are officially set. On Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, the AL wildcard and NL wildcard games were played in order to see what teams will take on the Tampa Bay Rays in the American League Division Series and who will play the San Francisco Giants in the National League Division Series. Starting Thursday, October 7th, the Boston Red Sox will face off against the Rays in the nightcap as the White Sox and Astros play the earlier game. The Los Angeles Dodgers will face off against the Giants once again after the Braves play Game 1 against the Brewers on Friday, October 8th. Now, you might be wondering how we got to this point, especially after we almost had a four-way tie and a couple possible Game 163s on our hands. Well, you see, in Game 162, the Mariners just couldn't do enough to fend off the onslaught of the Angels, causing them to lose the game and their hopes for the playoffs. The Blue Jays, on the other hand, did literally everything that they could, winning their final game 12-4 over the Orioles. But the Blue Jays 
as well missed out on the playoffs, as both the struggling Yankees and the Red Sox won their final game and therefore finished with a better record. So now, it's time for some playoff baseball. I also wanted to start off this episode by recognizing the passing of Eddie Robinson. Eddie played 13 years in the major leagues with nine different teams in that time. He was a four-time All-Star and won the 1948 World Series with the Cleveland Indians as their star first baseman. Eddie served three years in the military during World War II before playing 10 of his 13 seasons in the major leagues. After he retired, he coached for the Braves and the Kansas City Athletics before joining the Texas Rangers front office and becoming general manager. He then finished out his career as a scout for the Boston Red Sox, the only team, by the way, of the quote-unquote original eight American League clubs that he did not play for. Eddie was the oldest living former MLB player at 100 years old. In today's episode of Painting the Corners, I want to talk about some kind of controversial baseball. You see, there have been a lot of really good, fair baseball games in the history of the major leagues. But occasionally, something so bad, something so insanely crazy will happen, making it a controversial and frustrating sport for players, fans, and honestly, even umpires. One perfect example that I found to fit this point was literally called the most controversial game in baseball history. (laughs) I'm not making that up. This game happened between the New York Giants and the Chicago Cubs on September 23, 1908. So actually the anniversary of it was just a few weeks ago. And it actually happened to be a deciding game on who would win the National League pennant that year. And get this. It was played at the Polo Grounds, so a bit of a callback to the uh, Weird Stadiums episode from last week. Chicago took an early lead in the fourth as Joe Tinker hit off of future Hall of Famer Christy Mathewson that got past the right fielder Mike Donlin and into the deep parts of the strangely shaped Polo Grounds. The game was quickly tied, however, thanks to a single by Buck Herzog as he eventually moved to second on an error and then to third on a sacrifice hit just before being hit home with another single. So, by the time that the ninth inning rolled around, the game was still tied. Now, here comes the really controversial bit of this game. Here's the scene. There's a runner on first base, Moose McCormick, and two outs, with Fred Merkel up to bat. Now, Merkel wasn't really a star player or anything, as he only had 47 plate appearances in the entire 1908 season. But regardless, he managed to get a single down the right field line that moved McCormick all the way to third. Now, there were runners on the corners with two away. Al Bridwell, the giant shortstop, hit a heat-sinking missile on a first-pitch fastball into center field. McCormick quickly came in to score, which caused the crowd to run out onto the field as it seemed that the walk-off single meant that the game was over. And not only that, but it would have signified that the Giants got the National League pennant, so of course, you know, cause for celebration. 
Merkel, understandably, saw all of the fans running onto the field and turned away back to the dugout without ever touching second base. Seeing this, the Cubs' second baseman Johnny Evers retrieved the ball, even though some think it was an entirely different ball, and tagged second base, technically resulting in out number three. Now, according to the official MLB rulebook, a run is not scored if the runner advances to home base during a play in which the third out is made, whether that be by any runner being forced out or by a preceding runner who is declared out because he failed to touch one of the bases. Now, I kind of see where they're getting this because Merkel should have gone to second base if it was a single in any other point in the game. But the fact that he didn't ever technically hit second base... Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a very strange way of seeing this rule. But on the other hand, I feel like you can also tell why it was a terrible decision. I mean, yes, Merkel didn't touch the bag, but the blame shouldn't have gone to him. I mean, Merkel assumed that the game was over, as he should. I mean, as the second base umpire assumed as well. That, and I mean, the third out was already technically called because the Giants pitcher, Joe McGinty, picked up and threw the ball into the crowd, again thinking that the game was over. So that alone technically resulted in an interference call, but I mean, you know, it's just kind of the same. As Hall of Fame umpire Bill Clem puts it, the call was the rottenest decision in the history of baseball as the force rule was meant to apply to infield hits, not balls hit to the outfield. And because of all of the fans on the field and the fact that there were no stadium lights at the polo grounds, the game was called as a tie in the ninth inning due to darkness, and the game was never resumed. Instead, the battle for the pennant went on in the next few days, ending up with the Cubs winning the pennant and then eventually winning the World Series. It's just crazy to think how that decision really changed the entire history of baseball. A lot of the other games I'll cover in just a second kind of follow a similar theme. Unlucky plays coupled with some bad calls leading to a lot of just bad situations. Like in the much more recent 2012 National League wildcard game between the Cardinals and the Braves, where a kind of similar situation unfolded. You see, the game ended up with the Cardinals winning 6-3, but at one point in the 8th inning, the game was all of the sudden really close. The Braves had runners on 1st and 2nd, with a single out on the board. A base hit would make the game, I mean, very interesting. Andrelton Simmons, the Brave shortstop, was up at the plate. He ended up hitting a fly ball into, honestly, no man's land into left field that dropped between the Cardinal shortstop Pete Kuzma and left fielder Matt Holliday. Now, for playoff games, the umpiring crew grows from four umpires to six, as two umpires are placed in right field and left field. So on this pop fly, the left field umpire, Sam Holbrook, called an infield fly rule. Now, the infield fly rule is defined as a fair fly ball, not including a line drive or a bunt, which can be caught by an infielder with ordinary effort, and that's the important bit, ordinary effort, when first and second, or first, second, and third bases are occupied before two are out. But the thing is, 
it was not an ordinary play for either fielder. If you watch the video, you see Kuzma running honestly like a quarter mile into left field to try and chase this ball down, much like Matt Holliday was doing as well. So instead of the bases being loaded with one out, there were now runners on second and third base with two outs. And, you know, fans, understandably, started littering the field with trash, bottles and hats that were being thrown in such great quantities that the game had to be delayed for 19 minutes <laughs> to give the grounds crew a chance to clean all of it up. I mean, they even had to go so far as putting an announcement through the PA system at Turner Field warning the fans that the game was subject to forfeiture by the umpires if they continued to throw stuff on the field. After the delay, the Braves manager, Freddy Gonzalez, asked to put the game under protest, which was denied shortly after the game by the MLB Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Joe Torre, as Joe kind of explained that it was simply just a judgment call. You know, some would argue a bad judgment call, but a judgment call nonetheless. After the final out was recorded in the game, however, both teams had to rush off the field as angry fans started throwing more and more stuff onto the field. The 2002 Major League All-Star Game also ended in a very controversial manner, as the game was called in the seventh inning, because not just one, but both of the teams completely ran out of available pitchers. So, with the game tied at seven apiece, it ended. There was no MVP award given out, and really all the fanfare was sort of just snuffed out right then and there. However, after the game, the MLB decided to do a vote to award two players from the American League and the National League this kind of MVP status that they would have maybe gotten in the game. Johnny Damon and Andrew Jones were the winners of that MVP award, so I guess there is a little bit of silver lining to that one. However, while we're on the topic of controversial All-Star games, what about the 1957 MLB All-Star game, which was already so controversial before the game was even played? You see, back then, voting players into the All-Star game was not really unlike how it is now. You go and vote on players that you want to see representing the American League and the National League as well. Well, the Cincinnati Redleg fans decided that they only wanted to see their team <laughs> represented in the All-Star game, and they almost got their wish. By the time that the final votes were counted, almost the entire starting lineup for the Redlegs was elected, save George Crow, who was beaten out by the Cardinals' first baseman, Stan Musial. However, only just beaten. Seven of the starting eight fielders were still in either way, which in turn launched an investigation by the then MLB commissioner, Ford Frick. They found that the majority of the ballots cast came from Cincinnati. Apparently, newspapers would print pre-marked ballots with the entire Red Legs starters that would then be distributed with the paper, reminding fans to go out and vote for the Red Legs. Bars and restaurants had the ballots as well, some of which wouldn't even serve their customers until they filled out one of the ballots. <laughs> like, they wanted to make sure that their entire team made the All-Star game. Frick in turn suspended the fans' voting rights, 
a right that wouldn't be restored until 1970, and gave Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews, Ernie Banks, and Red Schendienst positions in the game. The game itself, however, was not controversial in the slightest, but honestly a rather exciting one instead. The game finished with a 6-5 victory for the American League, which was truly well-deserved, as both the American League and the National League scored three runs in their halves of the ninth inning. So I guess you could say as well for this one that, yeah, maybe there was a little bit of silver lining. I just think it's hilarious that something like this has never really happened again. I feel like this topic, I mean, like most of the podcasts that I've done and covering the material that I have so far, I mean, we are really only just scratching the surface of these controversial games in the entire history of the MLB. There are probably millions out there. But you see, more often than not, I feel like a game could be marked as controversial if there was just one bad call or a bad play, I mean, whether or not it had any effect on the overall outcome of the game. And I mean, thinking about that, kind of just in the general scheme of sports, not even just baseball, I mean, it's kind of the case. And that's honestly the beauty behind it. I mean, people make mistakes and, you know, yeah, it's not fun when it happens, but, you know, it does happen. So next week's episode, we're going to be continuing on with this idea behind the weirder and sometimes darker sides of baseball. You see, MLB players have gone on strike against the league eight times, in which 1,737 regular season and playoff games have been missed. So, we'll talk about what happened in these seasons, what caused the stoppages, and how they were resolved eventually. Thank you for listening. Fifty five hundred people tune into KCSU every week. Do you want them to hear you? Integrating into the Northern Colorado music scene can be difficult, and KCSU is here to make your life easier. Whether you're a nationally touring or local band, KCSU invites you to submit your music to KCSU's digital submission form. Find the form at KCSUFM.com. We're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Cutta Babcock, and this is COVID-19 Updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 3,700 cases of COVID-19 since May 2020, with seven new cases among students and one new case among staff at the university yesterday. Around 89% of students attending on-campus classes are vaccinated, along with around 88% of university employees. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks indoors and in crowded outdoor settings regardless of vaccination status. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible 
And if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. And always get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The county reports over 37,000 cases of COVID-19 and nearly 300 deaths. Larimer County has a case rate of 244 cases per 100,000 residents for the past seven days, and 88 COVID-19 patients remain in area hospitals. Intensive care unit utilization is at 95%. The state of Colorado reports just under 700,000 cases of COVID-19 and nearly 8,000 deaths. 7.4 million vaccines were administered in Colorado as of this morning, and 3.5 million Coloradans are fully immunized for COVID-19. The United States is experiencing escalating or unchecked community spread in all states, but some U.S. territories are near containment. Nationally, there are over 44.3 million cases of COVID-19, and over 713,000 people are dead. In the past two weeks, cases went down by 21%, while deaths went down by 16%. Average new cases are about 93,000 daily, and new deaths average at around 1,700 daily. Internationally, 4.8 million people died from COVID-19, while around 240 million cases were reported. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, the Associated Press, and National Public Radio's Coronavirus Tracker. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Today, we're joined by Austria Cohn of The Collegian to talk about her article discussing the climate strike, which happened on Friday. Thanks for joining me today, Austria. Thanks for having me here. Um, So when did the climate strike happen on Friday and how crowded was it? Yeah, so the strike happened at 5.30 and it was on October 8th. And I'd say it was probably like 20 to 30 people that were in attendance. All right. And then what were protesters' primary concerns at this year's climate strike? Yeah, so they were talking about the land back movement with the Hughes land and then animal agriculture in terms of, you know, slaughterhouses. And they talked about the JBS slaughterhouse as well in Greeley. And the last big concern was CSU divesting from fossil fuels. All right. And then can you tell us a little bit about the route of the march and if there was anything significant about that route? Yeah, definitely. So it started at Moby Arena and it went through the plaza. And at that time, there was a lot of homecoming festivities going on. And so, you know, family, alumni. So they uh, walked right through there and then it ended at the administration building in the Oval. All right. And then how did student leaders address the concerns of student activists? Yeah. So a CSU president, um, Christian Dykeson, was there and talked about the problems and was in support of a lot of the issues they were talking about. And he also mentioned that ASCSU just applied for a grant for $10,000 for the sustainability fund. All right. And then what organizations were involved in organizing and mobilizing protesters through campus? The two main organizations were Food Not Bombs and Clothe the People. And a lot of the protest was led by two student protesters. All right. And then is there anything else that you'd like to add about this event? Yeah. So the solution that the protesters were wanting is for everyone to come together and, you know, make a difference for sustainability. All right. Awesome. Thank you again. That was Austria Cohn from The Collegian. You can read her article by visiting collegian.com. And again, that article is Fort Collins protesters come out in support of sustainability on the collegian on collegian.com. And that article is by Austria Cohn and was published on October 10th. 
We'll be right back, so stay tuned for the Rocky Mountain Review. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes things need to get a little bit weird, so here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world. Classified military documents have been leaked on the War Thunder video game forums because the leaker wanted to win an argument. According to Kyle Campbell in USA Today, War Thunder is a multiplayer vehicle combat video game popular with military enthusiasts due to its authentic hardware, equipment, and vehicles. Fans of the game often discuss the real-world accuracy of this equipment on its online forums. On Sunday, user underscore red underscore cross underscore got into a passionate argument on the War Thunder forums about Leclerc about the... Lech main battle tank, an actual French army vehicle. It seems the squabble was over the game's representation of the uh, tank, and Red Cross was adamant that they were in the right, so much so that they leaked the Lechrex classified manual onto the forums. It turns out that Red Cross had access to these documents because the user apparently is an actual crew member on a Leclerc in the French army. Moderators for the War Thunder forums quickly deleted the documents before issuing a warning to everyone saying quote guys it's not funny to leak classified documents and modern equipment you put the lives of many on of, in stake who work daily with the vehicles keep in mind that the, these documents will be deleted immediately alongside sanctions thanks for reading end quote this isn't the first time this has happened on the forums. Back in June, a player who was a service member in the UK's military also leaked classified documents on the Challenger 2 tank in order to win a similar argument. That info was also swiftly deleted. The government of Canada asked U.S. whistleblower Chelsea Manning to travel to Canada just so border agents would be able to physically kick her out of Canada. According to Adrian Humphreys at the Montreal Gazette, the odd request was made by Canadian government lawyers last week in anticipation of an immigrant, uh, immigration hearing scheduled to begin Thursday for Chelsea Manning, the former U.S. soldier who leaked thousands of U.S. documents that changed the public's view of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. In the hearing on whether Manning is eligible to visit Canada is to be held by video conference. Lawyers are on behalf of the Minister of Public Sa uh, Safety and Emergency Preparedness asked the Immigration and Refugee Board to postpone the hearing until Manning is in Canada for it rather than participating over a video link from her home in the United States. The government said that if she wasn't physically in the country, Canada Border Services Agency, or CBSA, wouldn't be able to remove her if the government wins its case. Manning's lawyers objected to the request. In a decision Monday, IRB educator Marissa Musto dismissed the government's motion, saying the intent of Parliament was simply for people who aren't allowed to be in Canada to not be there. Musto says if Manning is found to be inadmissible after the hearing, the impact on Manning would be the same wherever in the world she was. Manning, a 33-year-old American citizen, was a military intelligence analyst deployed to Iraq in 2009, who became one of the best-known American whistleblowers after leaking a vast trove of documents through WikiLeaks to major news organizations around the world. The documents revealed undeclared civilian deaths, complicit in, uh, complicity in torture, significant human rights abuses, and 
evidence contradicting the U.S. government's public versions of its wartime actions. Manning was arrested and convicted under the U.S. Espionage Act and Computer Fraud Abuse Act and sentenced to 35 years in prison, the longest sentenced uh, ever issued in the United States for leaking. After 2017, after being seven years in prison, Manning's sentence was commuted by U.S. President Barack Obama. Soon after her release, Manning tried to come to Canada but was stopped at the border. She was considered inadmissible by CBSA because she has been convicted of a serious criminal offense outside of Canada. A hearing on her admissibility was scheduled, but a decision is not expected to be released immediately afterwards. Written submissions are expected from both Manning and the government following oral arguments. That's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now for the weather. Today was cool and rainy with a high of 60 and a low of 37, a pretty stark change from last week. Wednesday, clouds will head out, leaving the area with sunny skies and a high of 61 with a low of 33. Thursday will cool back down with a high of 50 and a low of 29 with scattered showers throughout the day. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in at 4 p.m. on the Rocky Mountain Review this Thursday, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Kuda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Melissa Ronaldo, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.